good to see you here this morning. Thank you so much for your faithfulness here at the church. It is a delight. It's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to be given the opportunity to study, to preach um, God's Word. And uh, I have been hoping and praying that what is shared with you this morning will be taken more of words from Christ than from myself. And I will prepare you ahead of time that much of what I will say will be quoting the words of Jesus. So when you hear, when we read those scriptures, I want you to sort of set me aside and think of, of Christ speaking to us. We need a word from Christ about our life. What life is about, what is, what's most worthwhile in our lives. We're going to talk about the flowers of the field. A theme that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, but also comes from the words of Isaiah the prophet. Here are the words of James. And as we read these words, I want you to see and imagine that he has learned this having been with his brother, his half-brother, Jesus. Having been to the Sermon on the Mount, he knows this sermon well. And now is giving to the first century churches a, if you would, a commentary, a synopsis, a summary of his brother's great preaching at the Sermon on the Mount. So here we find James, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, talking about the poor, the rich, the lowly, and the boastful. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich. Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? In the spring, the flowers of the field They grow, they grow rapidly with the warmth of the sun and the soft rains that fall to nourish these uh, flowers of the grass. And their bloom, their blooms are bright, they're full of color. However, when the hot sun begins to bake and the dry winds of summer come, the flowers wilt. By fall, the flowers have died. They've fallen on the ground and they've blown away. Isaiah the prophet used this same analogy that Jesus did and James is quoting to describe the brevity, the shortness of our life as well as the permanency of God's word. What a contrast. Listen to Isaiah. All the flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are Grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, and then notice the contrast. But the word of our God will stand forever. What a contrast. And such is life. Here today and gone tomorrow. But God and the truth of his word 
are here today and forever. So my comments to you this morning from James, they will contain numerous scripture references from our Lord. We must hear from him about these matters as it relates to the brevity of life, the futility of life, and what matters most while we are here. Early Jewish Christians were facing an incredible, terrible season of adversity. It was in this hot season of life that James wrote to these Christians and writes to us. He exhorted them, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. They were to rejoice, James says, knowing that their trials were producing an ever-increasing capacity to persevere, to stand under pressure. And that will make for spiritual maturity. One of the characters of spiritual maturity is the capacity to remain the capacity to persevere. Some trials, however, they come and they go. Others linger. Some linger for the rest of our lives, even after many years of faithful, fervent prayer. But the Bible says that God always always hears the prayers of the suffering saint. Always. So, why? Why does there seem to be no answer to our plea? Sometimes his answer to our prayers for deliverance is, yes, right now. And we love to hear that answer. Other times his answer is, wait, Persevere while his providence is working out its perfect course in our lives. And then he answers our prayer and delivers us. And then there are other times when his answer to our prayer is allowed in O. No. But with the no, he always promises his grace will be sufficient so that we can persevere through these trials. So in a perpetual season of adversity, as many of these Christians were going through, we and they needed to accept God's sovereignty, God's perfect good providence, and pray for the wisdom to go through those trials by faith. And in this way, the Bible tells us Christ is glorified and the process of our spiritual growth continues. Martin Luther wrote how his faith grew. He said, Affliction is the best book in my library. Affliction teaches us things we'd never learn from reading a stack of self-help books. By the way, I've never known anyone who has gone to a library to check out a book on how can I get more adversity, pain, and affliction in my life. And yet it is interesting how this book eventually finds its way into the library of our life. The Bible teaches that trials are normative and to be expected here during our days. And when our trials come, we need to see them through the eyes of heaven. That's a perspective we need and that's what we'll work on this morning. But the big question as we go through our trials is, so what are we supposed to learn in our trial? Now James, the half-brother of Jesus, succinctly answers that question. We need to know that God is working all things together for good 
and his glory. And that's the kind of wisdom we need to pray for so that we can keep on pressing on through our trials by faith. And adversity comes upon the rich as well as the poor, just like the summer sun blazes down and the hot winds sweep over the earth. One commentator made this helpful observation. It's almost a great introduction to what James is saying. Here's what he says. The wisdom of the world places worth upon one's circumstances and possessions. The more, the better. The less, the worse. So when we buy into this kind of wisdom... We either lament our lack of wealth or pride ourselves in our accomplishments. For the poor bemoan their lack of position in their trials, always hoping and striving to get more as if this would be the solution to life's problem. And then there's the rich. For the rich man, he takes a false pride in his wealth. When his economic rug of security is pulled out from him, he's devastated because so much of his worth was dependent upon his wealth and power. He concludes, so when trials hit both ends of the economic continuum, we must perceive our true worth in our glorious position in Jesus Christ. He is the anchor of our soul. The author here has spent a great amount of thought contemplating the words of Jesus and those of James. So let's pick up James' wisdom for living in distress time. What do we need to understand? And he uses the analogy that Jesus used to help us gain the perspective of our life through heaven's eyes. We only have to look at the hillsides of our parched mountains here to observe that first, the flowers of the field, they will pass away. James calls the poor not to bemoan their financial troubles Because nothing can erode away their exalted place in Christ. That remains. He also calls the rich not to boast or trust in their wealth. And the only thing any of us can truly boast in is what? Christ. That's what we're to boast in. What he's accomplished for both the poor and the rich both need This wisdom. And James first addresses the lowly. He exhorts the lowly to glory in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, is what James said. We discover in the book of Acts that the early Christians were in a deep economic depression. They were ostracized in their synagogues. They were boycotted in the marketplace. They were persecuted for their faith and they were scattered for fear of persecution. So by the year 46, James wrote this epistle to the believers who were deeply committed to each other just to survive. But how are these poor Christians to count it all joy in this financial fix? How do you rejoice when you're struggling financially? That affects every part of your, you and your life. The poor were likely envying the rich. Maybe asking questions like this. How can God be all good when I'm hardly able to feed my own family daily bread while the rich are eating lamb chops? 
Or they may have pondered, if God is sovereign over all things, why doesn't he give me what others have? What? Am I not as worthy as the rich man? You see, Jesus was trying to give the lowly brother, who's called poor, perspective to their humble condition. I could say this from travels. The Lord must, and I know he does, love the poor. Because he made so many of them around the world. And if you have been there, you too will grow to love them. I stood in a jungle clearing and Yanesha territory of Peru, the jungle there, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. Know how well you could see that. And while I was there, they set up a table for me. If you could see around, you would see there's a clearing, but all around us is just jungle. They have very little. Sometimes they will only have one meal a day. But for me, they set up this incredible table. Look at the, looks like China. Tablecloth, napkin, a fork. This was a, a meal fit for a tribal chief. By the way, I brought a prop. I just want you to know who's preaching this morning. This is what they called the crown for the chief of doctrine. Doesn't fit me well, but I brought it to remind me of their love, of who they have become. Sometimes I envy them in their simplicity of life. Their simple love of Christ. Now, this meal is sort of like, if you would, sort of the blue light special. Pieces of fire roasted chicken, rice, those little mounds there. There is uh, also, uh, you can see some pale um, tomatoes sliced. There is a uh, a platanos here, uh, some pan that was baked in an outdoor oven, and of course the chicken. But notice that. You know what that is? Two grubs. You know what grubs are? Somebody going, yeah. They're like huge caterpillars. I saw those babies and I thought, oh no. What am I going to do? So I would do what you would do. I ate around them. (laughs) And as I was eating, they were always watching me. Just wanting me to enjoy what they had cooked. This was the delight of their diet. The cook... She came over to me and then it was translated for me. She said, go ahead and and eat. And I don't remember the Yanesha term for those grubs. Go ahead and have some. I thought, oh no. Now everybody is watching this American trying to figure out what to do with a grub. I picked one up. I thought... Is there a top or bottom? (laughs) You use a fork. It's a fork. And she goes, no, what you do is you pick them up, you take the head and bite them off. And then it's sort of like a a push-up. Like, and it's like eating out of a straw. Not a plastic straw, mind you. 
So I did what they said. Tried my very best to look like how scrumptious could this be? And they were so pleased. Except me. Inside, every part of me is going, yuck. And when no one was looking, I took my napkin, because I had eaten one, took the other one, wrapped it in my napkin. (coughs) Like that, I dropped it on the ground, I squashed it and put dirt over it. And no one noticed, to my delight. But the smile on their faces of giving me their very best as an expression of their gratitude was one of the most humbling experiences in my life. Grubs and all. And I can honestly say this. I love these simple, kind-hearted, and contented brothers and sisters in Christ. My wife and I can attest. They are some of the most gentle, contented, loving people we've ever met. They were the poor. They were the lowly. And I can say, great is their reward in heaven. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And this much you can be sure of. They are the future of the church. Everywhere I go, and I think others, you'll see that Christ is raising up his church amongst the poor. Jesus assured the poor that they had a special place in God's heart. The poor needed to be assured that their lowly position in the world wasn't the final definition of their worth before God. There are those who are economically poor as well as poor in spirit. They are humbled by the harsh realities of their life, but they're exalted in Christ. And they aren't so proud to admit their need daily and to ask for God's grace. They're quick to do that. To them, Jesus promised the kingdom of heaven. It was theirs to inherit. Therefore, in spite of their adversity, they were not to be anxious, but rejoice. Count it all joy because their testing was making them rich in faith. Jesus' wonderful words on the Sermon on the Mount addressed to the lowly his deep love and care for the lowly. In Matthew 6, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit, let's just say one inch, to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Said this, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice Jesus asks the question. It's rhetorical. So in light of what he said, Jesus continued, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, that's what they seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his righteousness, not ours, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, he could do not worry about tomorrow. Monday. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you think Jesus was in touch with culture? Do you think he was in touch with the poor? Do you think he didn't understand what they were going through? You can hear him. He knew exactly how they felt. Jesus comforted the lowly because so much of their life was filled with how to daily survive with the meager resources they had. In their lowly estate, however, he promised they would be exalted by God. To them, the kingdom of God was theirs to inherit. Were they of less worth To the Lord than the sparrows that he provides for daily? And his answer is a resounding N-O. No. They are the beloved children of God. They are the beautiful bride of Christ. No matter what your position in life, whether you are poor, lowly, don't sing to matter much to anybody, you matter to God. John Calvin wrote, since it's incomparably the greatest dignity to be introduced to the company of angels, nay, to be made associates of Christ, he who estimates this favor of God aright will regard all other things as worthless. Do you hear what he's saying? If you understand who you are in Christ, everything else just doesn't add up. He's about ready now to address the rich. But rather than bemoaning our humble circumstances and status, the poor were called to be what? Grateful. It's impossible for us to be joyful when we are not grateful. Are you joyful? Then you're grateful. If you're not grateful, you'll be bemoaning your circumstances. Because of their identity in Christ, they are blessed. How do we look at life? Ecclesiastes 2.24 is trying to help us gain the vision of life, our perspective of ourselves and our life. It says this, Ecclesiastes 2. Nothing is better for a man or woman than to enjoy the simple provisions of life like bread drink, and labor as from the benevolent hand of God to do what? Enjoy. Enjoy that piece of bread. That cup of water. And the fact that you have a job, even though it may seem lowly, doesn't pay you what you really should get, what you deserve. You see, he's saying 
Our temporal need is not a measure of our eternal worth. In the humiliating circumstances of the poor, God had already exalted them with all spiritual blessings. Are you feeling like the bank book's pretty low? The portfolio is not as deep as it needs to be for retirement. You're in retirement going, how am I going to make it to the end? The Lord understands. But you must always remember, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. There are no have-nots in the kingdom of God. There are no poor, spiritually poor in the kingdom of God. Because of their identity in Christ, he who became poor for us so that we could be made rich. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's spiritual prosperity. Spiritual blessings. In his humiliation, he was exalted in heavenly glory. And because of his exaltation, the poor in spirit are seated with him now in heaven. We're told that by Paul in Ephesians. And they shall soon enjoy this exalted place with Christ in person. Because the scorching sun is upon us. This is our blessed hope. Our hope to be with Christ. We are to glorify the Lord now, knowing that everything he has given, taken away, or withheld from us, is to remind us of our need for him. So why do we sometimes go through trials? It's because he's trying to demonstrate how deeply we need him. To glory, to boast in Christ is not vain glory, but it's true worship. Do you want to worship the Lord? Boast in Christ, not boast in yourself. Not boast in your accomplishments, but Christ's accomplishments. We are to boast in Him fully aware that our salvation comes only from Him and nothing comes from us except what? My sin. That's what I gave Him. What did He give us? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and whose righteousness? His. It's yours, it's ours. It's so vain. It's so self-righteous. So wrong to boast in our accomplishments. In our righteous works. Or to have any advantage over others. Now James has given us a perspective to poverty. And now he gives us a quick perspective to our prosperity. So he turns to the rich and he exhorts the rich to boast in his humiliation. Let the rich in his humiliation boast because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. My friends, I'm not a prophet, but I'm going to predict something that I guarantee you is going to affect everyone in this room. You know what it is? Death. If you were born, you will face death. That's the reality of where we are. And to understand the difference between the day of your birth and the day of your death, how you live it, that's the difference is Christ. How you live between there. I share a gravestone with my first wife. It has her date, her name, 
their date of birth and date of death. And it has my name. Don Smith. Underneath it, February 10th, 1943. I'm 55, so or 65. I was going to give you a, another um, arithmetic, but I better be truthful up here. It says 75. And then there's a line. And then it's blank. <laughs> this, I'm in the line right now. But that blank will someday, maybe soon, be filled in. What a wonderful reminder to me when I go there. You have a birth date. There's a line. But the blank is waiting for that date. So how are you living your life? What's most worthwhile and enduring? Trying to accumulate wealth? Um, How's that going to work for you when you have to fill in that space. <laughs> if you're waiting for Christ, that line will mean love, service, glorifying Him. These are harsh realities that, quite frankly, if not understood, could be a bummer. But properly understood here, we'll have to try to encourage you not to be dancing out of here today. Because you'll say, so what you're saying, Pastor, what Jesus was saying, no matter what my position, whether I'm rich or poor, what really matters is now, today, and regardless of what I'm going through, I have the riches of Christ now, and I will be with Christ forever in a new body. Yes, a new mind, a new nature that will never die. All of the riches that are in heaven now can never rust or be taken from us. Isn't that great? But what you invest in today, if it isn't for heaven, will rust, it will corrode, and it will be left for your kids. And I can tell you this, your kids will probably look at it. They'll take the money, but they'll look at some of the things that you've treasured and go, who wants this? Who's going to take it down to the Salvation Army? Who could we give this to? Somebody said, just give it to the church. (laughs) You see what I'm trying to say? The things we treasure, they're, they're temporal. They're not eternal. So how are we living with eternity in mind? That's the big question here. Oh, if you thought it would be fun to hang around with Jesus, I've got news for you. It would be absolutely the most threatening thing you've ever heard is to follow him. No one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money. And it's like he was saying, so who are you serving? Me? Or your stuff that's going to corrode? What consumes our time and our minds is what's most valuable to us. Who is it? Or what is it? Is it God? Prosperity? Possessions? Power? Let's ask another question. Who's most likely to become bitter or disillusioned? The man born poor who has little to lose? Or the rich man who was born into wealth and he loses everything he had. Who do you think would be the most bitter? There are rich Christians 
who are poor. The riches have made them poor. There are those who are rich, but are poor in spirit. And the difference between having or not having and losing everything is the big question. What are you looking through the eyes of God, of heaven, or through the eyes of men? James concludes his wisdom. He's doubling down like his brother on how life is so fleeting, passes by so quickly. He hits hard on the harsh realities of life and death. It's one thing that our culture does not want to hear about. It does not want to face. What is it? It's death. You could talk about life, you could talk about having fun, about travel, accumulating wealth, big homes, uh, nice cars, whatever, and we, you know, we're all into that. But then somebody says, but then there's death. We don't want to hear about that. You see, the scorching heat of adversity is going to come upon all of us one time or another, and then ultimately, the flower wilts and dies. That's why it's so unwise to count on tomorrow to get your act together. Because you do not hold tomorrow in your hands. The one who holds your tomorrow is God. Jesus warns about our values. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your heart is, is where your treasures will go. Jesus is a realist. He's trying to encourage the people following him. Said, you're looking to me to give you bread. You're looking for me to get your healing. But you need to understand. I can do that to demonstrate that I'm God. I am who the Bible says I am. But where's your heart? The wilting flower in the analogy is Death. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I've never seen a a needle that a camel can go through. Jesus has got an incredible sense of humor. He's a great preacher, by the way, obviously. And he goes on to say, why is it so hard for the rich to see their need? He says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, they choke out the word of God in their lives. All the worries, all the concerns, all the exhaustion associated with wealth, with wealth they could squeeze out life Jesus warned again, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This is it. This is your big day. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and you will weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, For so their fathers did to the false prophets. The rich and rich are often preoccupied with how to acquire more and more wealth while giving little thought to eternity. Some of the rich of that day, not unlike our own, here's what was going on in their mind. 
Some are thinking, well, I have wealth because I go to the temple. I go to the temple regularly and I go to all the big feasts. Okay. Others were thinking, well, the reason I'm rich, I'm prosperous, is because I'm just smarter and I work harder than others. Is that really how you define what it means to be prosperous? James calls the rich to see the vanity and futility of life without Christ. He said, the flowers of the the field, they will fade away like the rich men. The treasures of the rich, they will fade like the grass on the side of the mountains near here when you have a Sirocco, a Santana wind that kicks up the fire. Ecclesiastes 7.14 gives us a way to look at life. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Is this a good day for you? Take advantage of it. Enjoy it. If this is the time that you and your family can enjoy being family, fully take advantage of it now. Are you joyful with your spouse? Take full advantage of it because tomorrow you don't know if the flower will wilt and fade. Surely God has appointed the one, that is prosperity as well as the other, so that man cannot find out nothing that will come after him. What are you leaving? What's your legacy? Stuff? If you were a follower of Christ in the first century, if you were a pastor, preacher, appointed to preach by Paul, here's what he said to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, boastful, arrogant, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Some of you hear my voice and you're saying, you know, Pastor Don, I'm, I'm not rich by any imagination. Really? Have you gone to Haiti? You know what the uh, annual average per capita yearly gift is? Or their 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 salaries or whatever, $350. That's not a day. It's not a week. That's a year. If I count that out, that's less than a dollar a day. Who's the rich? We're the rich. You were born here or you came here. And God has blessed us, but we have with our riches responsibility. Use it for the glory of God. Give to the poor. Give to the needs of the church. Give to the work of God around the world. Enjoy what you have been given. And yet, for those who are truly rich... The treasures of the Christian, they are eternal. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's what awaits. Paul reminds us again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. That's why we have to learn to look through the eyes of God at what's worthwhile. Otherwise, they're invisible to us. The things that are most worthwhile enduring in life are God's glory and his word. That's where our attention needs to be. Loving the lost. Giving to the needs of others. Willing to sacrifice our life to gain life. These are the things that Jesus taught. Like I said, it would have been the most threatening thing to have been a follower of Jesus Christ, to have heard his sermons. Because <laughs> there had been nowhere to hide. He just knows exactly what's going on. You either have to submit or reject. And that's kind of where we are this morning. You either submit to Christ or you reject him. And you wait for somebody to fill in that blank on your tombstone. Father, um, these are somber things. A death is very sobering. All of us have lost loved ones. We know not the day that we too shall wilt and fade and die. You know that day. You hold our day in your hand. So Father, as we conclude, may your Holy Spirit encourage us in the riches we have in Christ rather than bemoaning our circumstances which sometimes seem are so overwhelming. Give us the wisdom to rejoice as we go through our trials. Because we know there's reason, and that reason is Christ. Bless your people who are here this morning. Encourage them. Cause us all to think about what you want to do in us and through us for the rest of our life. Thank you that we are rich. Because we're part of the kingdom of God. And we have eternal riches that await. And the greatest treasure of all of heaven awaits us. And that treasure is Christ. In whose name we pray.